The scripture reading for this morning is from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Our Father, I preach the word of God for the glory of your name alone. I don't preach to the glory of men or for the praise of men, but Father, this morning I pray that you would allow me to devote this message to our dear brother, Paul Gilmer. I loved him in life, Lord. I walked with his family through death, and one day I will see him when we all meet you face to face. And I love you so much for the few years that we shared. I love you for the joy that we shared. I love you for our partnership in ministry. I love you for the hope that he had in the gospel and that he helped me to be strengthened in the gospel. I thank you for the impact he had on so many people. And I pray, Father, that uh, today that you would increase his joy as he knows that the word of God continues to be preached. Even as Paul said when he was in prison, the apostle Paul Paul said that you can chain me, but you can't chain the word of God. And Father, we know that you can take your people to you, but the word of God will continue to spread. It will continue to be preached. It will continue to go forward until the day when Jesus Christ returns. And so, Father, for the glory of your name and in memory of our loving brother, I preach and I pray. Amen. For those who had decided to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, it was an exceedingly difficult time of life. In one way or another, they had heard him preach and teach, they had heard him heal, they had heard him, they had watched him deliver people from demons, and they made deliberate choices in their lives to forsake everything and follow this man. They walked away from family, they walked away from businesses, They walked away from hobbies, from preoccupations. They left everything and followed Jesus Christ. And now their Lord and teacher had been arrested on some trumped up charges. He had been tried, convicted, put to death, and buried in a cave, and they did not know what to do. The last three, four years of their lives had been totally devoted to this man. 
They had lost everything, including their reputation, for the sake of this man. And now he was gone. And they were stunned. They were perplexed. They were confused. They had no idea what to do. They had no idea how to continue with their lives. They had no idea how to take even just the next step in their life. Jesus had been put to death on a Friday afternoon, and he was put in a cave for burial by that evening. And now it was Sunday morning, only about a day and a half later. And two of his disciples were walking down a road that went to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles to the north and to the west of Jerusalem. It would have taken about two hours to make that journey, three hours on on a bad day probably. While these two men were walking down the road and talking about things, somebody else walked up beside them. And that someone turned out to be the resurrected Jesus Christ. But if you look in your Bibles in chapter 24, verse 16, Luke tells us that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So somehow or other, Jesus was standing right before them. They were seeing him and not seeing him at the same time. Their eyes were taking in the information that somebody was there, but somehow their brains were not processing the information as to who exactly was there. Jesus, being a master at accessing people's heart, asked them a very simple question that indeed opened up their hearts. The simple question was this, what are you talking about while you're walking down the road? Now that might not, that might not seem like a very important or controversial question to us, but these disciples actually took offense at that. For them, this was a perplexing question. They, they couldn't understand why he would ask such a thing. And they were hurt, they were sad, and they actually stopped right in their tracks. So they're all walking down the road. Jesus asks the question. They stop in their tracks, and they just are staring at him like, what are you talking about? And Luke specifically says they felt very sad. Sad at what had happened, sad at how could this guy not know what's going on? And sitting there looking at them, one of those disciples, whose name was Cleopas, said to Jesus, are you the only one who's come to Jerusalem in these days for the feast of the Passover who hasn't heard about the things that have taken place? And Jesus simply said to them, what things? What things? Beloved, the Lord is such a master at surfacing what's inside of our hearts. I hope that you can see that if he had walked down that road and simply entered into the conversation with these guys, it would have just been a conversation about the latest news. In those days, the, the, the news of Jesus' death was all over Jerusalem, just like issues in Ferguson and New York right now are plastered all over our news. It was the same way. And if he would have just entered into a conversation, it would have been a fairly cerebral discussion about the news of the day. And Christ didn't want to have that kind of discussion. That's not what he was interested in. That's not what he was there for. That's not what he was about that day. He did what he had to do to access their heart and surface their emotions. And like I said, these, these questions might seem innocuous to us, but for them, it actually raised a bit of ire in them. They had some anger at him, some perplexity. Like, how in the world could you ask a question like that? And I just hope you can see that Christ is a master at surfacing the heart so that he can deal with our hearts. Cleopas then answered the Lord, and he said this. He said, we were talking about the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. He was a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed. We watched him heal people. We watched him exercise power over demons. When he spoke, they acted. 
We watched him perform miracle after miracle. We watched him command wind and waves. We watched him have control over the forces of nature. He was a mighty man, a prophet who was powerful in deed. And he was also a man that was powerful in word before God and the people. He taught us with great insight, with great sincerity, with great passion, but mainly he taught with a tremendous authority that nobody could quite explain and nobody could deny. He was a powerful man of God. But then our own chief priests, our own rulers, our own people condemned him and put him to death. They crucified him and were confused as heck as to how they could get away with that and why they would do that. Why would these people turn on such a great man? Why would they so unjustly put him to death? How could God allow this to happen? He's been crucified. He's dead. It's over. We've been following him, listening to him, loving him, learning from him, hoping in him, and it's over. They crucified him. They trumped up false charges. They brought false witnesses. They persuaded the powers of Rome to put him to death, and we just don't get it. We don't get it. As for us, we had hoped that Jesus was the one who redeemed Israel. We had hoped that he was the promised Messiah who would rise up and put together an army and push Rome back and reestablish the glory of Israel and serve as king right there in the holy city of Jerusalem. We hoped in him with a great hope, a, a deep hope, and now it's all gone away. It's just gone. And we're perplexed. And then this morning, something strange happened. Some of our women went down to the tomb where he's supposed to be. They're going to bring spices and ointment to deal with his body. And when they got there, they saw that the stone to his tomb was rolled away, which in itself was a strange thing. And as they approached the tomb, they were met with two angels visibly appearing to them. And the angels actually spoke to them and said, Jesus Christ is not here. He is risen. And these women ran back and told us about it, but none of us understood. We didn't really believe it. We thought they were just making it up, that they were hallucinating or something. It didn't make any sense to us. So two of our leaders actually ran to the tomb. They went down there to check things out for themselves, and when they got there, they found everything just as the women had said, but they themselves were still confused. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what to believe. They didn't know what to do. They're just wrapped up in great confusion. That's what we were talking about on the road. How could you not know what we were talking about? I hope you can feel their perplexity. Jesus certainly did. But it amazes me how the Lord is not afraid to do what has to be done and say what has to be said in any moment. He, I'm sure, sympathized with what they were feeling and what they were going through, but rather than comforting them there on the road, he actually rebuked them, and he used some pretty strong language. You have to pardon me, I didn't uh, note the verse number here, but somewhere in the middle of that conversation, Jesus said this. He said, oh, foolish ones. He's called them fools. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So they poured out their hearts to Jesus and he issued a rebuke to them specifically about their lack of faith and he was right to do that. And I see at least two reasons why he was right to do that. 
First of all, you have to understand that these disciples grew up as Jews. So that means that just like we come to church week in and week out, they went to synagogue week in and week out. And all the days of their lives, they heard the law of Moses, they heard the prophets, they heard the writings of the Psalms, the Proverbs and such. They heard these things read and expounded week after week, month after month, year after year, for the entirety of their lifetimes. If they had not been blinded by their own sin, they would have seen the glory of Jesus Christ in the pages of the scripture. If they would not have been clouded by their own agendas, their own desires, their own skewed ways of thinking, they would have seen clearly that all things point toward the Christ and that everything that had happened in their lifetimes had actually been written before. But because of their own hardness of hearts, they read the scripture and did not read the scripture at the same time. They saw the words on the page and they did not see what they were seeing at the same time. They had sight and blindness at the same time. And Jesus is saying, where's your faith, man? How could you not know what these things were about? You're wondering, how could I not know what was happening? I'm wondering, how could you not have understood that these things had to come to pass? And there's another reason why Christ rebuked them. You, you may remember that from the Gospel of Luke, at least three times, Jesus sat his disciples down and taught them from the Scripture that these things had to happen. These things are going to come. In this world, you will have trouble. And in this world, Jesus said by the Scripture, I must be persecuted by the leaders of Israel. He showed it to them from the pages of the Bible. I must be killed it is not enough that I die. I must be killed according to the scripture. Third thing, I must be buried according to the scripture. He showed them chapter and verse, beloved. Fourth thing, I will rise from the dead. Death will not have the final word. These things are written. They must take place. At least three times Luke shows us that Jesus specifically taught this to his disciples and they did not get it. They heard and they didn't hear. They saw and they didn't see. They had a kind of sight and a kind of blindness, a kind of hearing and a kind of deafness. And so the Lord was right to rebuke their faith. And I think we would do well to listen to what he had to say to them. I wonder how many of us have sat under the teaching of the scripture week after week, month after month, year after year, and yet our hearts are dull. They're hard because of our own sin, and we don't hear what we're hearing. We don't see what we're seeing. We don't learn what Christ is trying to teach us. One thing I love about Jesus is that he's not afraid to tell us the truth, but no sooner does he tell us the truth, but he lavishes grace upon us, and that's what he did to these disciples after he lovingly rebuked them, you'll see in verse 27, this would have been the most amazing Bible study in the history of the world. It says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So I just want to make sure that we get the picture here. These guys are walking down the road. Jesus joins them. He asks them a piercing question that actually stops them in their tracks. So now they're not walking down the road anymore. They're standing by the side of the road talking. And this discussion leads to the place where Jesus says, let me show you where I am in the scripture. Let me open your eyes to see. From the way I've calculated it, I think this conversation went on for six to eight hours. 
when Christ began to open their minds to the scripture. This was not a brief discussion. And here's how I come to that. The Bible clearly says that these guys left Jerusalem in the morning. It was only a two or three hour walk to Emmaus. Later we'll see that they arrived in Emmaus in the evening. So that leaves the whole entirety of the day for this discussion to happen by the side of the road. I'm telling you, that would have been a stunning Bible study to be at, amen? I would have loved to have been there. But no matter how much time actually passed by, we don't know exactly, it was a lot of time, but I don't know exactly how much. The more important thing to understand is this. Jesus saw himself in the writings of the prophets because he was the spirit at work in the hearts of the prophets. And in this sense, I mean prophets in a broad sense. I mean everybody who was writing in the Old Testament. And the Bible clearly teaches us that Christ himself inspired them to write as they wrote. So when they wrote of him, it's because he was working in them. And then he came to fulfill what he caused them to write. Keep a finger in Luke 24, and please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I want to read just verses 10 through 12 with you. Concerning this salvation, Peter writes, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. And verse 11 is the key verse. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So here's a text that clearly teaches us that it was the Spirit of Christ himself working in the hearts of the prophets to prophesy about Christ. It's pretty amazing. It was the Spirit of Christ at work in Moses when he wrote about the dawn of creation, which is a living metaphor of the light of Jesus breaking into the dawn, the darkness of this world. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.6, he said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God who created the sun and caused it to explode into darkness, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the meaning of creation, the meaning of the creation of light especially, is a living metaphor for Christ. And it was the spirit of Christ in Moses that caused him to write about that. And then two New Testament writers picked that up and said, that's about Jesus It was the spirit of Christ at work in Moses when he wrote of God's great promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. And Galatians 3.16 tells us that that word offspring is singular, it's not plural, and it refers to Jesus Christ. So when God made a promise to Abraham and Moses wrote about that promise, that was about Jesus, that someday through Jesus Christ, all the nations of this earth would be blessed. Christ himself inspired the prophecy. It was the spirit of Christ at work in Moses when he led the people out of the oppressive land of Egypt as a metaphor of the day when Jesus Christ would come to lead us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
It was the Spirit of Christ at work in Moses when he wrote in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that one day God would raise up a very great prophet to whom all the nations of the earth should listen. So Israel was called to listen to Moses. All nations would be called to listen to this great prophet, and that prophet is Jesus Christ. It was the Spirit of Christ at work in Joshua when he led the people across the Jordan River, a sort of baptism, if you will, and into the promised land as another living metaphor of the day when Jesus will come and gather people from every tribe and tongue and nation of this earth and lead us into his eternal kingdom, which will never be destroyed and which will never be denied and which will never be diminished. It was the Spirit of Christ at work in the judges in their lives and in their hearts who served as forerunners of Jesus Christ who would rise up to be the final judge of Israel and indeed of all the nations of the earth. It was the Spirit of Christ at work in the lives of Boaz and Ruth who served as a living metaphor of Jesus who paved the path to David and then paved the way to the living Christ even while Israel was rebelling so wickedly against God. It was the Spirit of Christ at work in the prophet Samuel as he rose up to lead Israel, as he submitted to God in the selection of Saul and then David as the kings of Israel, as he prophesied, especially in 2 Samuel 7, of a coming day when Jesus Christ would rise up to be the eternal king and rightful inheritor of all that belonged to God. As Samuel wrote, the Spirit of Christ was at work in him, prophesying about himself. It was the Spirit of Christ at work in the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah when they returned to Jerusalem and to those destroyed ruins and they rebuilt that wall, they rebuilt that temple, they rebuilt that great city as another living metaphor of the day when Jesus Christ would come into hearts like ours that had been destroyed by sin and he would restore us and build us together into a great and holy and eternal temple that will never, ever be destroyed by any enemy near or far domestic or foreign. It was the Spirit of Christ at work in Job when he wrote in chapter 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. You may know that the book of Job is actually the oldest book in the Old Testament. And I want you to know that the first person who penned any words inspired by God saw a day when Jesus Christ would come and walk upon this earth because Christ was at work in the spirit of Job. It was the spirit of Christ at work in King David when he wrote in Psalm 1, of the great man who does not walk in the wicked, the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Beloved, David mainly was talking about Jesus when he wrote those words. It was the Spirit of Christ at work in David when he prophesied in Psalm 8 of this great prophet that would one day rise up and rule over the nations. And he crescendoed with these words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And lest you think Psalm 8 is not about Jesus, I invite you to read Hebrews chapter 2 and you will see that indeed it is. 
It was the Spirit of Christ at work in King David when he wrote Psalm 110 and wrote of one so great that in him would be combined all political power and all religious power, for he would be appointed as the king above all kings and the high priest above all priests. You know, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament. In fact, it is the most quoted Old Testament passage from anywhere uh, in the New Testament. So Psalm 110 is extremely important, and it's all about Christ, and it was the spirit of Christ working in David that caused him to write it down. It was the spirit of Christ at work in Solomon when he wrote of the nature and depth of wisdom, for Christ himself is the wisdom of God. He does not just grant wisdom, he is wisdom. It was the spirit of Christ at work in the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, when they repeatedly wrote of various aspects of the life and the teachings of Jesus, from his birth to his death and resurrection, from the teaching of substitutionary atonement and sin, all the way to the teaching of final consummation where he will come in his glorious kingdom. The prophets wrote about all of these things because they were moved by the Spirit of Christ. Beloved, I've given you the smallest, smallest taste of what it would have been like to stand there on that road with Jesus Christ and watch him. By the way, he must have been doing this from memory because in those days they didn't have Bibles to carry around. So I think he was there on the road calling to mind from memory one passage after another, after another, after another, after another for six to eight hours showing himself to these people and how how I wish I could have been there. You know, they always ask the question, if any Bible story, if you could insert yourself into any Bible story, which one would it be? And I'm not sure I always how to answer that question, but this certainly would make my top three list. I would really have loved to have been there when Christ showed himself through all the scripture. When Christ was finished with this time of teaching, they continued their march toward Emmaus. And when they reached the borders of the city, Jesus made it seem like he was gonna keep walking on I don't think this necessarily means that he was deceiving them. I just think that he was acting as though he was gonna just keep moving. And they urged him to stay there. Night was setting in, it was getting late, so they wanted him to come and eat, and probably they offered him to come and lodge with them. And so in his grace, Jesus agreed to stay with them, and they sat at their table. They reclined around the table. And once they were all settled in, Jesus did something that finally opened these guys' eyes to who he was. It amazes me that through all that teaching, hour upon hour of teaching, with Jesus Christ being the teacher, they actually still never recognized who it was that was on that road with them and teaching them. But now they're seated at the table. He grabs the bread. He gives thanks to his father. He breaks the bread and he passes it to them. And in the breaking of the bread, the person of Jesus Christ is revealed. When the bread was broken, their eyes were opened. Somehow, when they heard about Christ, they believed what they were hearing, but they didn't actually see who he was. Now, as he broke the bread, they realized that they were sitting with Jesus. They knew that they had been talking with Jesus, and they knew that they were in the presence of the one about whom so much scripture was written. I find it very, very significant that their eyes were only open to Christ when their attention was fixed upon the broken body and the spilled blood of Christ. These men had been shown Christ in the scriptures, but they only really came to see Christ on the cross, through the cross. They had heard about him through the prophecies, but they came to know him through the death, burial, and resurrection that was his life. 
while many things about Jesus are revealed on the pages of Scripture, the fullness of his glory is only revealed through the cross. The fullness of the glory of Christ is displayed in that place where wrath meets mercy, where truth meets grace, where the horror of sin meets the irreversible forgiveness of a gracious, gracious God. Indeed, beloved, it was the spirit of Christ at work in the prophets who told of the day when the glory of Christ would be revealed through the cross and everything that went with it. And as I said, when that bread was broken, their eyes were opened. It was through his sacrifice on their behalf that they finally realized who he was. And I think that's an important lesson for us all. We can talk to people all day long about Jesus. Last night, we had 50 or 60 guests from outside of our church visiting with us downstairs. We had lots of good conversations with them about Jesus. And what I've found in my life is that people will love to talk with you about Christ as long as you keep it general. As long as you just have an open discussion about this great man and what he did. But when you begin to talk about sin and, and holiness and death and burial and resurrection and ascension, people start to freak out a little bit. But we have to go there. We have to talk about the cross. It's not enough to say, yeah, Jesus is amazing and he's done things in my life. Because the place where Jesus Christ is revealed to the human soul is at the cross. You cannot see Jesus without the cross. It's a hugely, hugely important lesson for these brothers and now for us as well. I find it amazing that when Jesus finally revealed himself to the disciples, he removed himself from the disciples. You'll see, if you look at verse 31, it says that after they recognized him, he vanished. I don't know exactly what that means, if he vanished in some miraculous way or if he just uh, dismissed himself and took off. I don't know. I just, I just find it fascinating that finally, after all this entire day, they finally get who, who they're with and Jesus takes off. And I just think the reason that he did that is because that it wasn't time for a fullness of fellowship yet. There was more that had to be done. There's more that had to be said. And so he took off from their presence. But the disciples were left behind wondering what had just happened. And they were saying to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was teaching us on the road? Didn't we have a sense inside of our hearts that we were being taught by somebody who wasn't normal, who wasn't just another man? Didn't we, uh, weren't we just gripped by the fact that we were hearing truth, absolute truth? And so in their wonder, in their amazement, they actually went back to Jerusalem. So it's still nighttime. And they walk back two, three hours back to Jerusalem, which would have been a harder walk because you have to go up to Jerusalem. But they were so excited to get there. When they got there, they searched out for the apostles, and now the apostles had all gathered back together, and they were with each other in one place, and these two brothers came in, and they heard them musing about the resurrection of Christ. And the the apostles themselves were now saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has even appeared to Simon Peter. So we see now another part of the story. First, the Lord sent angels to the woman at the tomb. Then he walked with these two brothers along the road. Somehow or another, he also appeared to Simon Peter. And the the apostles, they were still confused, I'm sure, but their confusion was giving way to joy. Their pain was giving way to anticipation as they were wondering what was going to happen next. And these two brothers from Emmaus shared the story of what happened to them how Christ had talked to them upon the road and how he had revealed himself through the breaking of the bread. And even while they were speaking, Luke says, Jesus appeared to them all. 
Jesus stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be to you. This freaked them out. We learn in John's gospel that one of the reasons it freaked him out is because he shouldn't have been able to get in there. The door was locked. So no one should have been able to enter, but somehow, boom, Jesus is there, and he's speaking to them, and he speaks peace over them. Luke tells us they were startled, they were frightened, and they actually thought that they were seeing a spirit, some kind of ghost or something, some kind of a, 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 a mystical appearance of Jesus, but not actually Jesus kind of reminds me of when they were on the Sea of Galilee and Christ came walking to them out on that sea and they didn't know how to believe it so they just thought maybe it was a spirit. And Christ again, I love him so much because he's not afraid to tell the truth in delicate moments because he knows that they're afraid but instead of comforting them, he rebukes them again. More mildly this time but he rebukes them. He says, why are you troubled? Really good question. And why do doubts arise in your heart. He's still putting his finger on their lack of faith. Why are they not believing? He repeatedly taught them all that all these things would come to pass. He showed them in the scripture. He taught them as plainly as he could. He sent two angels to talk out loud to two of their women. How many of you have ever had an angel appear to you, much less speak to you? Christ sent two angels at the door of his tomb to speak to two women. The Lord had then appeared to two brothers along the road, and he didn't just spend 30 or 60 seconds with them, right? He spent an entire day with them. He didn't just teach them a thing or two. He taught them hour upon hour upon hour. And then he appeared to Simon Peter. And so now when he appears to all of them at once, he's marveling that they're troubled, that they don't understand what he's been trying to teach them. He's marveling that there's still doubt inside their hearts. And so he spoke an eternal kind of peace over them. Why were their hearts troubled? Why were they still doubting? Why were they still seeing Christ and not seeing Christ at the same time? The flaw was certainly in them. And I think Christ was trying to put his finger on that fact. It's not that I have not taught you. It's not that I have not walked with you. It's not that I have not been gracious to you. I have given you everything you need. Why are you troubled? Why are you still seeing and not seeing But in his grace, the Lord did an amazing thing. He just said, brothers, come, touch me. Here's my hands, here's my feet, here's my side. You can see a a spirit doesn't have a body and bones like I do. You can see the brokenness of me. Come, touch me, feel me. I'm real. I am here with you. This is me. And then he did something next that I think everybody in Minnesota says amen to that. He asked for a piece of fish. He's like, hey, man, you guys got any walleye hanging around here? And they did. And they, they fried him up a piece of fish and he enjoyed a piece of fish with them. A spirit doesn't do that. Only somebody with flesh and bones does that. Christ wasn't, this wasn't mainly about eating. This was mainly about proving to his disciples that it really was him. That he really was risen. That all the promises that had been made actually came true. That everything God said he was going to do, he actually did. He was trying to increase their joy by increasing their faith. And then he said this in verses 44 through 49. So if you'll please look there with me. Here's what Christ said. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And just to let you know, in the Hebrew mind, They would use that term psalms 
to refer to all of what we call the poetic writings. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all of that. So in saying the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's talking about the whole Old Testament. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I think he probably gave them another mini version of that Bible study. But more importantly, he helped them to see what they were seeing in the scripture. And he said to them, thus it is written, it is actually written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You've seen it with your own eyes. It all happened right in front of you. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. With these sacred words, beloved, Christ again reiterated to them what he had been teaching them. But I hope you notice that he added something now. Now he added that the good news of his life, death, burial, and resurrection would be proclaimed throughout all the world. That's not something he had said before. It's the first time that this has come off of his lips. And I want you to notice that he said that the spread of the gospel is also written. So his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that's all written. All of it came to pass exactly as it's written. And now he is saying that the spread of this good news of the forgiveness of God in Christ is also written. And as surely as the things written about his life transpired, surely the spread of the gospel will transpire. Last night we had a wonderful outreach, a wonderful time of sharing the gospel with people who do not know Jesus. There are churches all over this planet right now sharing the gospel even as we speak. But I want you to know that the power and the certainty of the success of the gospel in the world has nothing to do with our techniques, with our charisma, with our plans, with our events. It has to do with the fact that it is written and it's going to happen. Christ uses us, he uses our events, he uses our words, he uses our love, he uses many things, but please understand, he is personally responsible for the spread of the gospel around the world. All we need to do is trust in his promises and submit our lives to him and just know that we know that we know that some people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on this planet will come to know Jesus. And one day, we will be united with them forever in his presence. That's a promise from Jesus, and we can take it to the bank. Oh, I can't imagine what the disciples were feeling at this point, but surely they were taking a a journey from indescribable pain now to unshakable joy. And I would have loved to have been in their shoes. What excitement there would have been. The bitterness of Christ's death now turned into great joy because he was alive. And these two things were very much connected. The height of their joy had a lot to do with the depth of their despair. Christ as a master was increasing their joy in him by allowing them to taste both things. At the beginning of our journey through the Gospel of Luke, you may remember that we saw that God provided 21 astounding signs that took place in only about one year of time. And all of those signs in themselves would have been miraculous enough, but when you combine 21 specific things in only about 12 or 14 months, it becomes almost astronomically impossible that all of that would happen unless God was at work. And all of these signs point to Jesus Christ and say, he is the one. 
He is the beloved son of God. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the savior of all the nations of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Believe in this one. And then we have journeyed through the Gospel of Luke and we have watched as Jesus declared his mission statement to come to this earth and proclaim liberty to the poor, to the hurting, to the needy, to those who need God in their lives, which is all of us. We've watched as Jesus Christ preached the gospel with great power and authority. We've watched as he healed people, as he delivered them from demons. We watched as he brought great glory to his Father. He lived by this pattern of the gospel, the power, and the glory. We've watched as Jesus Christ surrendered himself to the will of his Father and was willingly and gladly taking up his cross all the way to the moment where they snuffed his life out. And we watched now as he overcame death, as he displayed his power in the ultimate way by destroying the one who has the power over death. And now, beloved, at the very end of Luke's gospel, he takes us all the way back to the dawn of creation and to the giving of revelation and shows us how everything has been pointing to Jesus all along the way. So in the beginning of the gospel, he's trying to say, listen, there's lots of evidence, lots of proof that God is pointing to Jesus and saying he's the one. He gets to the end of his gospel and says, let me tell you a secret. God has been pointing to Christ from forever. The creation itself is actually about Christ. Every time the sun rises in the sky, it's a metaphor of the light of Christ coming into the darkness of this world and into the darkness of human hearts. All of the law, all of the prophets, all of the Psalms are about Jesus Christ. They always have, they always will be. And we need to learn, beloved, as we read the Old Testament, we need to learn to tell ourselves that the Spirit of Christ inspired every word of the Old Testament, and somehow or other, every word of the Old Testament is ultimately about Jesus Christ. The good desire of our God and Father today for us is that we would look to the created order and see what we are seeing, that we would look to the sky and see the handiwork of Christ and the display of his glory. The good desire of God for us is that we would read the scripture and study the scripture and meditate on the scripture and memorize the scripture and actually see what we're seeing. And we would actually see the display of the glory of Christ. The goodwill of our Father is not only that we would see the glory of Christ though, it's also that we would submit our lives to the will of Christ. The good will of our Father, the good desire of our Father is that we would give our everything over to him who is everything for us. I remember telling you at the beginning of this series that the Gospel of Luke is like an extended gospel tract. It's like an extended treatise that's trying to help us see who Jesus really is so that we'll believe in him. And I pray that as we come now to the end of our journey through Luke, I pray that we'll honor God's work through this book mainly by believing in Christ, by clinging to Christ. And so if you're in this room today and you've never believed in Jesus, I want to encourage you to take the Gospel of Luke and read it over and again. It's designed to help you understand who Christ is, what he means, and what he means for your life. If you don't have a Bible, there's a stack of Bibles over there. You're welcome to take one if you want one. But I want to encourage you to read it, to consider Christ and to give your life over to him. Believe me, your eternity is eternally serious. 
Once you die, you will live forever either, either under the judgment of God or under the mercy of God. And the only difference between those two is what you do with Christ. Christ is the one who paid the price for all of our sins. And the only way that we will escape the righteous judgment of God is by looking to Jesus and saying, God, Jesus paid the price for me and I believed in it. And if we believe in Christ, God will remove from us all judgment and he will pour upon us great mercy, tremendous mercy. In the last three weeks, I have helped to bury two young men. One was 46 years old, one was 30 years old. Both of them died of disease somewhat unexpectedly and definitely tragically. But these are tales for us to think about, to carefully consider. Our time of dying is not far away. The day is close when I'll be the one in that casket. And when that day comes, my chance to be right with God will be over. It's appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. So that's something we should really think about carefully. And before you meet your day of judgment, please meet Jesus in the pages of Scripture. I pray that as you ponder Luke, he'll give you the eyes to see what you're seeing. Just like he did for his disciples, he can open your eyes up too. And I pray that he will. For those of us who already do have a personal relationship with Jesus, I think that we can honor God's work through the Gospel of Luke by continuing to meditate upon it. Next spring, we're going to go to Luke's Volume 2. We're going to look through the book of Acts. And so it's not as though, in one way, we're, we're, we're done with Luke, but in another way, we're not done with Luke. In another way, we're going to be in his writings for the rest of the year. And I want to encourage you, between now and January 18, when we pick this series back up, I want to encourage you to go back and read the Gospel of Luke. Read it over and over again. Let Christ reveal himself to you. Let Christ teach you. Let Christ work in your life. Don't just waste the 12 or so weeks we've had in this gospel. Let him examine you. Let him speak to you about his answer to the question, are you truly living for the glory of Christ? Let him use the pages of scripture to open up your heart so that you can squeeze out of every moment of this life more and more and more glory for Jesus. I, I, I promise you, beloved, that if you will live for the glory of Christ, the day of your dying will be a happy day, a joyful day, because there your fruit will meet you in the Lord's presence. I want to close by just reading for you the final words of the Gospel of Luke. So if you'll please look with me at verses 50 through 53, and then after this, I'll lead us in a time of prayer. Then he, Jesus, led them out as far as as Bethany, and you might remember that that's the place where he got the donkey and rode into town. Now he's going back out there by the Mount of Olives, and there by the Mount of Olives, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. If God gives us the grace, we'll pick the story up right there on January 18th because Luke begins the book of Acts with the same story. But for now, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you with all of my heart that you were the spirit at work in the hearts of the prophets. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, with all of my heart that you are the fulfillment of the writings of all of the prophets. Because these things are true, we have eternal hope in you. And I pray, Father, that today you would give us eyes to see you, just as you did with those disciples. I pray that you would give us hearts to receive you. I pray that you would give us wills that long to bow down to you and live our lives for you. May we live our lives for the glory of Christ, who laid down his life for us. 
Lord, this is a work you have to do in us. And so we ask that you would do it and we give you thanks for what you'll do now. In the matchless, the mighty, the merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.